you would open up your Bibles to the book of Jonah. Jonah chapter 1, we are beginning a new sermon series. And this sermon series, as you'll see on uh, this graphic, is this, that God runs after us when we run away from Him. You obviously know from the book of Jonah, obviously one of the very popular things is that, well, he ends up in the belly of a fish, but that's not, that's not the main point of the book of Jonah. It's more so about God pursuing sinners. Let me remind you, as I did earlier for the confession of sin, what, what is preaching? Preaching is not someone telling others, hey, be better while he stands up there and says, because I'm awesome. But rather, the preacher sits under his own message because the preacher needs God's word. You see, we all need God's grace because all of us in here are sinners who are prone to wander. So Jonah chapter 1, we'll read verses 1 through 4. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying... Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea. And there was a mighty tempest on the sea so that the ship threatened to break up. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we look to you that in this pivotal time of worship, that you would enable us to hear you speaking to us. For you have brought us here so that we might hear you. And your word is you speaking to us. And so we're asking that in the reading and especially the preaching of the word, that you would use it as, as an effectual means of enlightening, convincing, and humbling sinners. That in this time you would drive us out of ourselves and draw us unto Christ. Father, would you do this by the work of the Spirit because of the sufficiency of Christ? We ask all this in his name. Amen. I remember one day when my older brother decided to pack up and run away. I think he was about seven years old. And he did the classic cartoon thing where he literally got out a shirt or a towel and got some of his favorite toys and favorite snacks. He wrapped them up and he found some sort of a stick or pole. I mean, it was classic cartoon thing. And he tied it on there, put it over his shoulder, and he just started walking to run away. I think he probably made it 200 yards. He came back. I even called my mom this morning, and I said, hey, do you remember that? She's like, I totally forgot about that. But I remember that no one was running after him saying, oh, no, come back, because we knew how ridiculous and silly that was. He was inevitably going to come back. But my friends, we also, we run away, don't we? 
we run away and we look just as silly as my older brother did in that moment. But the tragedy is that even though it is silly for us to run away from God, the tragedy is that it's true and it's serious. This type of running away is not something just to say, oh, it's not that big of a deal. Actually, it's something we need to be saved from before a destruction comes. That's what the book of Jonah is about. The book of Jonah is about how we are so prone to run away and how desperate we are for a God who would run after us to save us from what our sin would do. But really the question is, as we look at this particular text, is how does God respond when we run away from Him? I'm sorry for the spoiler alert with giving you the sermon series theme, but let's just entertain this question as we go through this text. How does God respond to us when we run away from Him? Go back to verse 1. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. What we first need to see here is that God runs after us with his word. God runs after us with his word. He does that here, as we see to Jonah. A couple of things we do need to keep in mind, though, as we go through this book, and we'll keep coming back to this, but maybe you're asking the question, well, how do we know that the events of Jonah are true? Is this book historical, or is it a parable? Is it tale, or is it truth? Well, a couple views on this is some people view it as just an allegory, where it's just a symbolic fictional narrative it's just used to teach truths and principles but the problem with that is that there's actually lacks evidence for that secondly there could be the view that this is what's called a midrash which is a type of commentary on scripture that the events of Jonah aren't necessarily historical but here's the problem with that view and the allegorical view as well is that it fails to reckon with the idea that Jesus himself refers to Jonah as being true. The other idea is that maybe this is a parable like Jesus' parables or like the parable that Nathan used to convict David in 2 Samuel. That this is just, it's a moral story. But the problem with that is this, is that if this is not reality, if this is not historical fact, then what does it mean when Jesus says in Matthew 12, 40, when he says this, just as, just as Jonah was in the belly of the great fish. So exactly in that manner, how exactly in the reality that it happened, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth, talking about his death and resurrection. So my friends, actually one of the things we need to deal with is this. If this is not historical reality, then what do we believe about the resurrection of Jesus? It's a serious question. If we're having maybe doubts about, well, how do these things happen? What about the historical reality of this? What about Nineveh repenting? Well, we know that Nineveh did repent temporarily, and we'll get to this later, but then they would go back on their repentance only a generation later. 
See, my friends, is this. Do we really, do we doubt God's ability to do this stuff? Really, it boils down back to what happened in Genesis 3 when Satan comes to Eve and he says, did God really say? My friends, all the evidence actually points to Jonah being a historical person written, this book written as a historical narrative even when poetry is used at times. And even Jewish tradition regards it as, as historical, but obviously the trump card would be this. Jesus regards the book of Jonah as real fact and real history. Jonah was an 8th century prophet in the northern kingdom. The kingdoms of Israel had split. The northern 10 tribes were known as Israel and the southern 2 tribes were known as Judah. Jonah was a prophet in the northern kingdom with the northern 10 tribes and to give you the picture, the northern tribes, not good. If you want to know Old Testament history, just remember it this way. Northern tribes, not good. Southern tribes, good, because the South is awesome. Um, I am from Alabama, so uh, forgive me. Um, even in Alabama, we love to say that there's Upper Alabama and Lower Alabama. We're just always trying to... But J Jonah is an 8th century prophet in the Northern Kingdom. That's important because all those kings were wicked. King Jeroboam II, during this time, he had enhanced the Northern Kingdom's borders and boundaries and he had strengthened their defense but here's what's amazing how did God give that advice and wisdom to King Jeroboam he actually did it through Jonah listen to this second Kings 14 25 which once again shows Jonah as a historical person he talking about King Jeroboam he who restored the border of Israel from Labo Hamath as far as the Sea of Arabah according to to the word of the Lord, the God of Israel, which he spoke by his servant, Jonah, the son of Amittai, the prophet who was from Gath-Hefer. Look at what your Bible says in chapter 1, verse 1 of Jonah. Jonah, the son of who? Amittai. You do have to imagine this with Jonah. That imagine that after he had delivered this message to King Jeroboam, imagine the fame and the popularity that might have come his way. Imagine maybe the idols of Jonah's heart that he might have developed after this. Because after all, he was the prophet who gave this word to strengthen that country. If someone brought prosperity to the northern tribes of Israel, it was Jonah. Can you imagine how awesome that was? Jonah had the ears of the king. Not a better place to be in. We all love influence today. We love the category of trying to be an influencer. Well, Jonah was that. He had the ear of the king. But yet what's interesting is that we do have to remember what Jonah's name means. It means dove. The word Jonah is also used in Hosea 7 verse 11 to describe Israel, the northern tribes, because of their sin, it calls them silly and without sense. They were being Jonah. And that's actually what we're going to see him be. But nevertheless, even amidst Jonah's silliness and senselessness of him running away from the Lord, we know 
that because of God's covenant faithfulness, he will pursue Jonah. Here's also what's very interesting about what the name, the son of Amittai, means. It means son of my faithfulness. But is Jonah going to be very faithful to God? No. There's a lot of irony in this, and we're going to see some even later. You see, what we need to see here is, first off, this major point is that Jonah is a historical person. The events are historical. And all of this is very important because it leads to our very historical, real Savior. But what was God's word to Jonah? Look at what it says in verse 2. Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. When it says get up, arise, go, it means get up and go at once. Don't delay, don't pass go, don't collect $200. Just go, get up and do it now. It's not like kids, I, of course I do this too, kids and Wilson. When some one of your family members say, hey, can you please take out the trash? And you say, after this game, or as I often tell Grace, let me just read this page real quick first. When God told Jonah, arise, go to Nineveh, he means get up and go now. Now Nineveh, Nineveh was a major political place in the kingdom of Assyria. Assyria would eventually destroy the northern kingdom of Israel. Okay, that's very important. You realize here, what is God calling Jonah to do? Go and preach to your enemies. One author puts it this way, to send a Hebrew prophet to Nineveh, who would one day destroy Israel, it would be like sending a Jewish speaker to deliver moral exhortation to the Germans in Berlin in 1936. The Lord calls it a great city. This word great is actually going to be used a lot in the book of Jonah. It means important. It means large the great city of Nineveh would eventually be the last capital of the kingdom of Assyria. And so, in a lot of ways, when you think about Nineveh, what would happen in Nineveh would affect all of Assyria. You see what God's telling Jonah. Go to your enemies who will one day destroy you. Let me ask you something. Can we put on our New Testament hats for a second? Does that sound familiar? Go down to earth to these sinful people who, by the way, will one day kill you. Isn't that what the father sent his son for? Now he tells Jonah, he says, go to Nineveh, that great city, and he says this, and call out against it. What does that mean? It means to preach, to announce, to summon. It's actually a word used for legal or political declaration about news. It was also a word used to summon someone to appear in court or to call someone to appear for military service. So when Jonah is going, he's going to preach. He's going to proclaim. And what is he going to proclaim? Or why is he going to proclaim? Where it says this, For their evil has come up before me. This word for evil means, as you maybe see, and you have a footnote at the bottom of your Bible, it means wickedness or even destruction. It can mean evil or disaster. Now, here's the thing. It actually probably means both. 
Because isn't that what our sin and wickedness does? It leads to our own destruction. Not just that our own sin destroys us, but it eventually leads to God destroying us because sin is against God. So what is God telling Jonah? He is saying, look, I want you to go and proclaim to Nineveh and warn them and tell them that their sin is so evil that the, the ashes of the evil volcano of their sin has arisen before me. It is so obvious. It is right there. And if they don't repent, destruction's coming. You'll actually see this in your bulletin if you actually open up your bulletin to the first page for meditation. There's a great quote by commentator John Mackay. He says this, When God warns people of his impending judgment... It is with the aim that they will respond in time and be saved. We'll hit on this later, but my friends, we need to remember what is God's wrath. It is not merely in just Him saying, you've sinned. We actually see in Romans chapter 1 is that God's wrath is seen in Him letting you go your own way without warning. His love and His mercy is showing you, you have sinned. Repent. Come to me. That was the message of Jonah. God wants to see Nineveh, Israel's enemy, to turn back, to be saved. But there is a very important point here that we need to almost step back and look at, is this notion of the word of the Lord came to Jonah. Why is this important? It is shown that the word of the Lord is an alien word, not a Martian word, but an alien meaning from the outside. It is not, God's word is not something that comes from within us that just our emotions tell us or whatever our intuitions or inclinations are, and so I just follow my own heart. That's not God's word. God's word comes to us from the outside. See, it's actually what comes from without us that should affect what is within us experience and theology are both important but one of them is most important theology is used to interpret our real experience our experience is not meant to reinterpret the theology it's very important God's word comes from without it comes to Jonah and it's very important because what does it mean to be made in the image of God well, it means that we were created by God's Word. We are sustained by God's Word. We are saved by God's Word. And we are made to respond to God's Word. You see, for Jonah and for us, we re when we respond contrary to, jo to God's Word, we live contrary to the image of God. Disobedience is hurting us. There's a musical comedy, My Fair Lady, where Eliza Doolittle, she's fed up with her lessons, and so she sings, and I'm not going to sing for you, don't worry, but she sings words, 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 I'm so sick of words. And isn't that what we do with God's word? Words, 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 I'm so sick of God's word. What was a prophet? That's what Jonah is. A prophet was someone who represents God, represents God to the people, and the prophet would do this verbally, he would speak, behaviorally, the way in which he would act, 
effectively meaning he's supposed to show God's disposition or God's posture towards the people. He's supposed to do so completely. But actually, also, a prophet is also this. A prophet is supposed to represent the people to God. And I'm going to show you how this all connects here. So just like as the prophet is supposed to represent God to the people, verbally, behaviorally, effectively, and completely, the prophet is supposed to represent the people to God verbally, behaviorally, effectively, and completely. Let me ask you a question. Do you think Jonah is going to do a better job of representing God or representing the people? The people. The irony is that since Jonah has been called to be a prophet to represent God to the people, he does not. You see, Jonah's calling with the word of the Lord coming to him is that Jonah is meant to proclaim God's word, God's message to the people. It is helpful, brothers and sisters, to be reminded of this. What is a pastor? What is a preacher? Now I know sometimes when a pastor gets up talking about himself, you can kind of sound like, what is it, Pinocchio, who says, I'm a real boy. But one of the most important things you can remember is what God is giving to you, not as if me, like, hey, look at me, I'm God's gift to you. No, it's the office. Whoever God would ordain to be here, to be your minister, is God's gift to you. Because the minister is called to represent God to you. The minister is called to represent you to God. That's literally part of the calling. And like the prophets, pastors today, it's not like we have our own authority. Our authority is not ours. It's derived from God. That means this. The only authority that I exercise is a declarative authority because it's God's authority. Very important. And that means this, that as the pastor, as the elders, that we have no right to alter God's message whether it's preaching, whether it's teaching, whether it's counseling, or whether it's receiving it. If it is true of the word, then it is God's word to you. Amen? But it's also this, as we see with Jonah, is that as Jonah was supposed to preach to Nineveh, so the pastor is called to preach to you. That is not always popular. The pastor is called to preach God's unchanging word to these changing times. And that is not always, po- it's not always popular. But he never has the authority to alter that message because that's what God wants to say to you. Paul says this in 1 Thessalonians 2.13 where he talks to the Thessalonian church and he says, we also thank God constantly for this. Listen to this. That when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it, not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God. My friends, this is why the second Helvetic Confession says this, Therefore, when this word of God is now preached in the church, by preachers lawfully called and ordained, listen to this, this is a Reformed Confession, by the way, We believe that the very word of God is proclaimed and received by the faithful. 
and that neither any other word of God is to be invented nor expected from heaven. Listen to this. When this word is proclaimed, you never need to look elsewhere for saying, where is God speaking? And that now the word itself, which is preached, it is to be regarded. Now, not, this is what it says in the confession. Not the minister, as if he in and of himself, not he that preaches, but the word through the office. For, listen to this. For even if he be evil and a sinner, I'm pretty sure they were thinking about me there. Nevertheless, the word of God remains still true and good. Amen? I actually remember talking with, where's Rich? You're somewhere. I saw you just like, there you are. Rich's dad came several months ago, and I remember talking with him, and he said this. We were talking about preaching, and he said, it's very interesting that we, as we preach, sit under our own sermons. Because it's God's authority. See, that's why, brothers and sisters, we need to be a church like the church of Berea in Acts 17, 11, where it says they received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were true. Pierre Marcel, a French uh, reformer, said this, Christ can no more live in us without the holy scriptures and preaching than the body can live without nourishment. That's why we prioritize the preaching of the word. That's why we attend. That's why we keep coming. But yet, how often we act like Jonah, right? Because even Christians, not just unbelievers, even Christians run away from God's word. We run away from what God says. We, we are, as the hymn says, we are prone to wander. Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. But let's ask ourselves the question, what does it look like to run away from God's word? glad you asked. Look at verse 3. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish away from the presence of the Lord. Here's what's so fascinating here. God runs after us with his word, but we run away from God's word. It's silly. It's so interesting in the Old Testament is that often whenever the Lord would come to the prophet, it would follow that up by saying, and the prophet did that. But it breaks pattern here. Rather now, but Jonah rose to flee. This is not the normal response from a prophet. <laughs> He's supposed to proclaim God's word. But it, here's what's interesting is that it says that he's supposed to go to Nineveh, but rather he goes to Tarshish. I'll just put it this way. Jonah is supposed to go east, and he goes as west as west can go. Actually, from what we understand about Tarshish, it's the furthest known western location to them in that context that day. We know from 1 Kings 10.22 that when a ship would leave, to go to Tarshish, it would take three years till it came back. So Jonah was being pretty serious. It's kind of like this. I tell Jonathan, I said, hey, I need you to go to Tulsa, and he goes to OKC. Or I tell him, hey, I need you to go to New York, but he goes to LA. Or I say, I need you to go to England. He's like, I want to go to Australia. Just the opposite way, thanks for letting me use you. And that's what we do. But did you notice, did you notice the repeating phrase here? He went down. Isn't that interesting? 
Twice it'll say that. It'll actually even say it again. This phrase means, it's the same phrase used like in Psalm 28 verse 1 where it says that someone goes down to the pit of death. And this is, my friends, this is exactly what sin does. When we run away from the presence of the Lord, we go down into death. Turning away from obeying God to obeying self is turning away from life to death. This is actually very fascinating about our Bibles, is that this is a theme of running away from the Lord, or what happens when we try to run away from His presence. Back in Genesis, when God created the Garden of Eden, we know that the Garden of Eden was on a mountain. It was on an elevated place because the rivers flowed down and out. On the mountain, on the Garden of Eden, in the Garden of Eden, was God's special, life-giving presence. And that was the tragedy that whenever Adam and Eve were kicked out of the garden, they had to go down the mountain away from God's presence towards death. This is actually so fascinating. Do you know that Jerusalem is on an elevated location, a type of mountain? That's why they called it Mount Zion. Please don't miss this. When Jonah's running away from the presence of the Lord, remember the temple in Jerusalem. When he's running away from the presence of the Lord, he's also literally going down in elevation. Literally, his outward actions affect what's happening in his heart. Because Jonah's trying to run away from God, but when he thinks he might get freedom, he's actually getting bondage. When he thinks that he can run away from God to have a better life, he's actually getting death. Eventually, even in Jewish thought, the ocean and down below was known as the realm of the dead, and that's inevitably where he will end up. My friends, what we need to remember is this. Don't you see how Jonah, the silly dove, is actually being very silly in his sin? See, there's a lot of irony whenever we run away from God. Our idols, they never give us what we want. An idol is anything that we treat as God, that is not God. Whenever we listen to ourselves over God, it always ends in death. It always ends in destruction. That's one of the ironies. Another irony is this. We know from Psalm 139, when the psalmist says, where shall I go from your spirit, or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in Sheol, talking about the realm of the dead, you are there. Do you not see part of the irony here about Jonah trying to run away from the presence of the Lord? You can't. And isn't that the tragic irony for us today? Is that even when we try to forget about God and our conscience to live however we want, that does not mean the existence of God goes away. That's the tragedy of people running away. But there's also another irony here. is God's covenant faithfulness. Jonah is in covenant with God. And here's the thing. God will run after Jonah when Jonah runs away from him. Amen? God's coming. 
what does this running look like? We do need to think about how we do this in our own lives. Well, whenever we run away from God, like the prodigal son, it doesn't always appear that way. Not always, brothers and sisters. Not always is our running away from God outwardly where everyone sees, but actually often it is right here, right now, while we sit and hear God's word. We run away from him inwardly before we run, run away from him outwardly. Sometimes we, we might begin to run away outwardly, but not too crazy, not too wildly, but in, as Jerry Bridges says, just with these respectable sins, just in our pride and self-centeredness and a little bit of anger here and there. But it's still running away from God. Or we also do this. We also do just outwardly and wildly run away from God. But my friends, we always run away from God first in our hearts before it goes to our actions. How does someone actually run away? How did my little older brother, how did he actually physically run away? What did he do? He put one foot in front of the other. One step at a time. And isn't that how we run away from God, right? One step at a time. I want you to think about this. How do we run away from God? One thought at a time. One conversation at a time. One driving past this certain neighborhood or certain place at a time. One internet search at a time. One look. One night. One meeting with this person. One, one more scheming about what if. One more time of harboring bitter thoughts or one more time of ignoring God's word. It only takes one step at a time before you end up in the realm of the dead. After using the ring of power to escape from his own birthday party, Bilbo Baggins is told by Gandalf to take off the ring and to put it up. But while he picks up the ring to give it to Gandalf, he looks at it and he he rolls it around with his fingers in his hand. And he starts talking to himself, saying this. Think about this picture of what this is like with our own hearts, with our idols. After all, why not? Why shouldn't I keep it? Gandalf replies, I think you should leave the ring behind, Bilbo. Is that so hard? Bilbo says, well, no. And yes. Now that it comes to it, I don't feel like parting with it. It's mine. I found it. It came to me. And as he continues to adore and look at that ring, he begins to say, it's mine, my precious. And what do you think J.R.R. Tolkien was thinking about whenever he wrote that, but our own sinful hearts? This is exactly how Eve fell in the garden. She was listening to the serpent. She failed to fight against his temptation. She began to entertain the idea. Then she was interacting with the idea. And then she was doing some further listening to the serpent, believing the lies. And then she says she looked after it and she lusted after the fruit. And then she finally indulged in it. And you better believe Adam did the same thing. One step at a time. What do we run away from? We run away ultimately, like Eve, from God's word. My friends, this is very important for us to think about today. We run away from God's word by how it talks about how we are saved, that we're saved by grace. We run away from God's law. We run away from God's ethics. 
We run away from God's plan of salvation. We run away from biblical identity. We run away from the mission of the church as, is, as it's proclaimed in the scriptures. We run away from embracing God's kingdom. We run away from worshiping God one step at a time. And what we do when we run away is that it's as if we put God on trial. And we say, I know what I'm talking about, you don't. You see, what Jonah's doing here is that he's running away from God because his idol is, his, is himself. He only wants God to save his type of people. Jonah wants God to give him what he deserves. Jonah wants God to make his life comfortable. Jonah just wants God to say, hey, just let me be me, but don't, don't encroach on my life, and don't we do the same thing? We were often like St. Augustine when he prayed, Lord, grant me sexual purity, but not yet. You see, this is the heinousness of sin, is that actually sin can become more heinous, as we see in our larger catechism. What does some of this sin look like when it's more heinous? Persons who are older saints, persons who have had more of experience of God's grace or those who guide others or lead others or those who are likely to be followed. Also more heinous sin is this, those who sin against the Holy Spirit, his witness and his workings. Brothers, sisters, it's a heinous thing. The more we hear God's word and yet the more we run away. But what does God do when we run away? That's the question. That's the tension. Look at verse 4. But the Lord. Now wait a second, I, I, didn't, I didn't hear anything there from y'all. Are y'all awake? You tracking with me? Do you, do you, did you hear what I said? After all that, but the Lord. Amen? But the Lord. It would have been true and glorifying of God Almighty. He would always remain perfect if in verse 4 it would have said, and the Lord let him run away. But it doesn't say that. Because he is covenant covenantally faithful to his people but the Lord but Yahweh you see how that word Lord is spelled it's not spelled capital L lowercase o-r-d it's all caps meaning Yahweh his covenant name it's putting the emphasis on this that God has entered into covenant an unbreakable promise with his people saying I will save you amen Actually, in the Hebrew language, the normal pattern of the Hebrew language is that the verb comes before the subject. But here, the subject, Yahweh, comes before the verb. It's emphasizing Yahweh, but God. You see, the answer to this is that when we run away from God, the answer is this. God runs after us when we run away from Him. Amen? What have been your but God moments? Maybe it's a list of some of these. You were living a wild college life, but God. You were living rebellious in middle school or high school, but God. You were struggling and seeping in bitterness over a certain situation your whole life, but God. Lust was dominating your life and it was ruining relationships, but God. Your marriage was falling apart because of your selfishness, but God. 
You were ignoring God's grace your whole life, but God. You were enslaved to earning people's approval, but God. You were an alcoholic, a drug addict, a sex addict, but God. You were sent to death row because of your crimes, but God. You were living in the LGBTQ lifestyle, but God. You were enslaved to buying enough things to make you happy, but God. Or maybe right now it's been a horrible week of sin, but God. Amen? What is the story? What's the story you're telling yourself? Is it just wallowing in the things of the past, or is it but God? Isn't that the story of Jesus? He was in the grave. We thought he was the Messiah. We thought he was the one. But God. Amen? My friends, your current sin struggles, you are never going to tell yourself the full story, dear believer, if you don't also say, but God. God is bigger than your sin. As Romans 5.20 says, even where our sin increased, God's grace abounded all the more. Amen? You see, a major part of our repentance, of turning back to God, is this. Is believing that God's grace is greater than our sin. I don't care how far off you've run. I don't know how long it's been. God's running after you in His grace and His mercy. There's no sin of yours that is too great, either in its power or in its presence, or even in its penalty. There is no sin that is too great for our covenant-keeping God. Amen? Come on now. We're going, I'm back preaching again. See, what is God's love? Yes, jo we're going to look at this next week. Jonah's running into a storm. It's not going to be comfortable. The fish is probably going to smell. But God's love is in him running after us. God's wrath would be him saying, go your own way. You see, maybe God has provided for you a friend this week who has come to you talking to you about what sin's really doing in your life. Maybe God's brought you back to a certain solid counselor who's reminding you of God's grace. Maybe there are certain situations in your life, circumstances that they do not feel very comfortable. They often aren't. But it's making you call out to God. What are maybe even the resources you've come across or coming back to the church or the elders shepherding you or the deacons serving you or the friendships that you've had or, or maybe even church discipline. Do you not see God running after you? Because he loves you. My friends, God is the greatest bloodhound out there. He can find any raccoon up in any tree. God is undefeated in getting his people. And if God loves you, he will do whatever it takes to bring you to himself. Cody Hooks was participating in a bull riding exhibition in Texas when he was thrown off a bull and in the process he was knocked out almost immediately he did this and his dad was watching right there on the fence and he knew immediately that the wild bull still bucking that with that happening his son was in grave danger 
And so when he saw the bull charging at his son who's lying on the ground unconsciously, his instincts kicked in. And he dove into the arena without hesitation. He jumped on top of his unconscious son in order to shield him from the wrath of the bull. And just as the father covered his son, the bull slammed into the father instead. My friends, what does Jesus Christ do for people like you and me? He runs after us and he covers us from the wrath of God. Amen? Instead of running away from God's word, Jesus ran to us as God's word. Instead of running away from his responsibilities, Jesus delighted in humiliating himself so that he might exalt us. Instead of running toward self-centeredness, Jesus delighted to be the true prophet who perfectly represented God to us and us to God. Instead of running away from God's presence, on the cross, the presence of God, as it were, ran away from him so that his wrath might be poured out on him. And instead of God hurling a gracious storm on the Son, on the cross the Father hurled darkness and wrath upon his Son so that we might be saved. My friends, what does God do when we run away from him? He runs after us. And right here, right now, old and young, baptized and not, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ who runs after you and you will be saved. That's the promise. Let's pray. Father, we're asking that you would please, please help us to understand the magnitude of this truth. Help us in these next several weeks as we look at this great book to see your grace towards us who so often run away. But yet we thank you that you're faster than us, that you're stronger than us, and you will bring us back. We ask all this, Lord Jesus, in your name, amen. Let me invite you to spend some time meditating on what we are about to do.